Welcome to part five of The Road to LA 1984, our multi-episode retrospective on the 40th anniversary of a seminal moment in a golden era of marathoning. We're telling the behind the scenes account of the athletes, the training, and the build-up races. This week, we rewind to the inaugural World Championships in Helsinki, Finland. After a spring of epic clashes in Rotterdam and Boston, the world's greatest distance runners converged on Scandinavia competing for the crown of world champion, a title awarded outside of an Olympic year for the first time in track and field history. 40 years later, here's the story of Helsinki 1983 on mile 160 of seconds flat. This is the Seconds Flat Running Podcast. He's broken three times. He refuses to give in. He might do it. Look at that guy. Look at Black Zero. Oh, my God. Soaring high above Helsinki Olympic Stadium, a tower rises to 238 feet 6 inches. The spire's precise height is a testament to Finland's rich track and field history. At the 1932 Los Angeles Games, Finn Matti Jarvanen heaved the javelin 238 feet 6 inches in winning gold. Jarvanen and his peers were at the vanguard of athletics. Countryman Pavo Nurmi, the flying Finn, won 12 Olympic medals in the 1920s, including nine golds, and held 22 world records. Hannes Kolomainen preceded Nurmi and capped an illustrious career with marathon gold at Antwerp 1920. Finland built its massive Olympic stadium in anticipation of the 1940 Olympic Games. Instead, the Axis and Allies spent the summer of 40 fighting across Europe in the Second World War. Hitler's forces captured Paris, the Battle of Britain raged, and Winston Churchill closed a June 18 address with words destined to echo through the House of Commons and into eternity. Hitler knows that he will have to break us in this island or lose the war. If we can stand up to him, all Europe may be free and the life of the world may move forward into broad, sunlit uplands. But if we fail, then the whole world including the United States, including all that we have known and cared for, will sink into the abyss of a new dark age made more sinister and perhaps more protracted by the lights of perverted science. Let us therefore brace ourselves to our duties and so bear ourselves that if the British Empire and its commonwealth last for a thousand years, men will still say this was their finest hour. Helsinki finally staged the Olympic Games a dozen summers later. George VI, who resolutely shepherded Britain through the German air invasion, had just passed. The United States would soon elect Dwight D. Eisenhower, the hero of World War II European liberation as its president, and a new division bisected Europe for the Helsinki Games, an Iron Curtain. Finland bordered that cultural wall, 
and an athlete from the opposing communist-controlled side dominated the 52 Olympics. Czechoslovakian Emil Zatopek swept the 5,000, 10,000, and marathon. Zatopek's training featured high volume and exceptionally high-density interval training. He also embraced his homeland's natural landscape, bounding through forests and snow, and even carrying his wife on his back for added resistance. The next distance runner who so supremely lorded over his competitors was once again a Finn, Lassie Varen, rekindled Finland's romance with the 5,000 and 10,000 meters when he captured gold in both events in 1972 and 76, what was coined as the distance double-double. After years of competitive discontent following boycotts and violence at Mexico City 1968, Munich 1972, Montreal 1976, and Moscow 1980, the first athletics world championships provided something new, a performance platform on the global stage freed from political and social entanglements. Fittingly, the championships were held in Helsinki, a hearth of athletic excellence, and an iconic venue. While enthusiasm for the championships was high among athletes, not all of the top contenders chose the marathon distance. Alberto Salazar picked the 10,000 meters in his continued quest to become the most complete athlete in distance running. Salazar expertly executed a late kick at the U.S. championships in June, outlasting Craig Virgin for a national title and bouncing back from his first marathon defeat at Rotterdam in the spring. But his uneven year continued in Helsinki. Hampered by bronchitis, Salazar mustered only 18th place, last among all finishers in the event final. Carlos Lopez joined Salazar in the 10,000. Despite his cross-country prowess and surprising second-place finish at Rotterdam, Lopez returned to the Oval. After a chaotic start full of jostling and several runners hitting the deck in the opening curve, Lopez got on the back of the lead pack and marked them throughout the race. But in a waterfall finish with five men between 28.01 and 28.02, the Portuguese Harrier drifted to sixth in 28.06. Italian Alberto Cova nabbed the title, edging out East German Werner Schildauer, who also fell tantalizingly short of 5,000 meters gold. Soon after, both Lopez and Salazar recalibrated their focus for 1984. The roads and the LA Marathon would be the target. Another potential LA threat joined Lopez and Salazar in the 10,000. Welshman Steve Jones crossed the line near the back of the pack in 12th. Jones accepted an invitation to make his marathon debut at Chicago 1983. He later played a central role in the evolution of marathon training and racing. However, it was far too early to know if his 26.2-mile aspirations would impact the Los Angeles Olympics. Without Salazar and Lopez, hopes of a Rotterdam rematch fizzled, leaving Francois Robert de Castella as the prohibitive favorite for the Helsinki Marathon. Born in Melbourne to parents of Swiss-French heritage, de Castella now honed his craft and shaped his powerful legs training over the rolling hills of Australia's capital, Canberra. Deke came in off wins at Fukuoka, the Commonwealth Games, and Rotterdam, and owned the fastest marathon time in human history. He waited until the final day of the World Championships for his next shot at glory. The biggest wild card and potential threat for Deke Estella was Waldemar Czerpinski, 
The East German defeated Frank Shorter for gold at Montreal 1976 and defended his crown at Moscow 1980. Given the presumed political tit-for-tat Eastern Bloc boycott of the upcoming Los Angeles Games, Helsinki likely presented Prime de Castella's only head-to-head with the reigning Olympic champ. Chapinski's erratic track record peppered with astounding performances at peak events not only made him a world champs contender, it later buttressed claims of his involvement in a state-sponsored East German doping regime. Documents uncovered after the fall of the Berlin Wall implicated Chapinski as one of thousands of athletes who benefited from a systematic state-sponsored performance-enhancing drug program. DiCostella donned a classic Aussie racing kit, green shorts with vertical yellow stripes running up each side to the hip and a white singlet with a green silhouette of his homeland on the breast. Inside that Australian silhouette, a yellow kangaroo. Green Adidas racing shoes with the trademark three stripes in yellow completed the outfit. These weren't the $500 prototypes on the feet of the top marathoners 40 years later, but rather the firm, minimal, unforgiving flats of an earlier era. The marathon start line appeared more like a youth all-comers track meet than a global championships as scores of runners packed the back straight in Helsinki Olympic Stadium. In retrospect, it was a breathtaking scene. Amid the geopolitical madness of the Cold War, runners from all corners of the globe surged and jostled across all eight track lanes in the opening meters of a 26.2-mile race that would define a single runner's legacy. The British commentator plainly summarized the site. A wider spread of nationalities in this race than any other. Tall men from Sweden and little men from Ethiopia. Strong men from Australia and hard men from East Germany. After two laps of the track, the marathoners scampered into the streets of Helsinki. Foreshadowing the next 40 years of racing at world championships, a pack of nearly two dozen men hung together through halfway, biding their time, matching moves, running a controlled tempo. Italian Gianni Poli and Norwegian Stieg Roar Husby featured at the front of the pack. Neither factored into the final results, but each rode the pace to a national record time. By the 90-minute mark, separation appeared. Again heralding the future of major marathons, two East Africans had surged to the front. The chase pack, led by American Ron Tabb, who finished runner-up to Greg Meyer at Boston 83, followed just seconds behind. Toward the back of that herd, marauding along the inside shoulder, caught in brief glimpses by the camera, was the stern countenance and imposing figure of the great Robert D. Costella. Looking calm and confident, Deke prepared for his definitive move. In fitting De Castella fashion, the surge happened late in the toughest segment of the course. Moving uphill beyond 21 miles, Deke splintered the lead pack. Only Ethiopian Kabede Balcha remained. Then again, right at the two-hour mark, Deke punished his East African competitor, hammering a sharp uphill and quickly gapping the only man still in view on the television coverage. Australian journalist Len Johnson of Runner's Tribe noted that De Costello ran that toughest five-kilometer stretch of the course in 14 minutes and 57 seconds. It was part of a massive three-minute negative split second half. He well and truly earned the moniker, Iron Man of Australia. 
Storming back into Helsinki Stadium alone for the final 300 meters, De Costello raised his arms to the heavens as tens of thousands of fans screamed themselves hoarse. Immediately upon finishing in two hours, 10 minutes, and three seconds, before Rob could even hit the brakes on his closing charge, a volunteer ringed Deke's neck with the laurel wreath of victory. The Ethiopian finished second. Cherpinski eked out the bronze with a late kick to outlast Sweden's keel, Eric Stahl. The strong Australian quelled the little Ethiopian, hard East German, and tall Swede. In doing so, he solidified himself as one of the greatest marathoners who ever lived and a man to beat in L.A. De Costello's victory capped a remarkable week of track and field. Athletes from nearly 160 countries ran, jumped, and threw in Scandinavia, producing record-breaking performances in front of sellout crowds. Carl Lewis, Edwin Moses, Steve Cram, Sergei Bobka, Mary Decker, luminaries in the history of athletics, all claimed gold. And Rob D. Costello's dominant final five miles punctuated the championships. Seven days earlier, the competition opened with anticipation and excitement as well as curiosity. For the first time at a global championships, marathons bookended the meet. The women's marathon movement that began with Roberta Gibb and Catherine Schweitzer at Boston in the mid-1960s now moved to center stage. Unfortunately, Helsinki lacked the star power of world record holder and defending Boston champ Joan Benoit. Despite being a 2.22 marathoner in an era when sub-2.30 performances were seen only slightly more frequently than a harvest moon, Benoit couldn't participate because she didn't run the qualifying race at the Avon Marathon in Los Angeles. Instead, she focused on faster track distances over the summer coming off her Boston win. Without Joni, the much-hoped-for duel between the world's two fastest women wouldn't materialize before LA 84. Norwegian Greta Weitz entered Helsinki with even shorter odds of victory than Rob D. Costello. She had reigned as world cross-country champ five of the past six years, conquered the New York Marathon four times, and posted a world record mark at London in the spring of 83, a mark which Benoit topped only a day later. In the early 70s, Weitz had success on a continental level, first in the 1,500 meters, then the 3,000. Her training progression through the decade was relatively simple. She increased volume, ran a significant amount of that volume at paces approaching her future marathon pace, and doubled more frequently. Early in the 70s, she averaged around 80 kilometers per week. When she reached peak track fitness and emerged as a cross-country force late in the decade, she averaged around 160 kilometers, or 100 miles, per week. In a sample week from her marathon world record build, Weitz ran an up-tempo long run of near 30 kilometers, morning runs on the other six days of between 10 and 15K in at most one hour, and doubled on five afternoons. Two of those doubles looked like her morning session. Three were faster workouts. A long session of repeat Ks on a minute rest, approximately eight miles of the Scandinavian staple, Fartlek, and her fastest session, 15 to 20 by 300 meters. Helsinki was a novel moment for Weitz. After years of sharing pacing duties with packs of sub-elite men, she was running her first female-only marathon. She needn't fret that the pack would get out slowly without male competitors. 
following in the time-honored Japanese cultural tradition, Rumiko Kaneko ignored announcers' calls for discipline in the warm, humid conditions and fearlessly moved to the front from the gun, separating from the field within the first 400 meters. Like her male counterpart, Dee Costella, Bites contentedly nestled into the crowd about 10 spots back. As the action moved from the track to Rhodes, Canadian Jacqueline Garreau quickly usurped Kaneko and built a lead as large as 30 seconds before the pack gobbled her up. It was Ireland's Regina Joyce's turn to surge. When the television coverage rejoined the race at 20K, Joyce led alone by a wide margin. Meanwhile, Veidt stalked her from the front of the chase pack. Several Americans, including Julie Brown, who a jingoistic American press dubbed as Veidt's best competition in a race sans Joan Benoit, as well as the Soviet contingent, tucked in behind Veidt's like migratory birds in a flying V formation. A half hour later, Veidt's pounced. With an elite ability to subtly yet definitively change gears, she shattered the chase pack near 19 miles. And when Veitz passed Joyce, she did so with devastating ease, an archetypal definitive move, eliminating any hope of the fading foe to tuck in and ride the wave. Greta extended her lead as the flying V disintegrated into a single file line of stragglers vanquished by her blazing pace, the Helsinki heat, and gusty winds. The 328-and-a-half-foot-tall tower's shadow blocked any view of the athletes entering Helsinki Stadium. Then suddenly, Weitz's tall, sinewy body gracefully wafted into lane one, attired in navy blue shorts and a tricolored horizontal block-striped top with red at the shoulders, blue in the middle, and white across the midriff, first pumping her arms, then gleefully acknowledging the crowd of her neighboring country, she won with ease by three minutes, a margin created in just the final 10 kilometers of racing. Her victory lap began 200 meters from the finish line. The media response considered more than just Weitz's win. This was a marvelous achievement for women's athletics as a whole. Speaking post-race, Greta Weitz sounded like a woman who understood the coming mission in Los Angeles 1984. Here, the time didn't really matter. The idea was to win the championship. But before Weitz got her shot at LA and Olympic gold, she towed the line at New York 1983, possibly the most dramatic race in the history of marathon. We'll share that epic story in part six of The Road to Los Angeles 1984 right here on Seconds Flat.